Well, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in Proverbs to chapter 15. We're going to be in the first five verses of chapter 15 of Proverbs. While you're turning there, I am Scott Farrell. I am privileged to be the associate pastor here at Warrington Bible Fellowship. And so, welcome once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, last uh, month, a month ago, when we were last in Proverbs, uh, for two Sundays in a row, we meditated together on pride and humility. We learned that pride means thinking too highly of ourselves. When we're prideful, we depend on God less and on ourselves more and more. And the result, of course, is disastrous. And that's because our relationship with God is broken in our pride. And that's, of course, because we stand in arrogance not only over other people, but over God. Humility, by contrast, is the pinnacle of life. Because in totally submitting to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we will one day be resurrected, as we just learned in the Catechism, and exalted into the very presence of God the Father Almighty forever and ever. Amen. And so humility means, in the meantime, that we deny ourselves. We deny ourselves by rejecting a life that is based on self-interest and self-fulfillment. And we do that so that we can live for the glory of God. And that we can live for the glory of God in the same way our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did, who gave himself up for us. Both pride and humility describe the condition of our hearts. A prideful heart is selfish and demands its own way, but a humble heart agrees with Christ uh, in the way that he prayed to his Father, not my will, but yours be done. And in fact, that becomes our prayer as well. Now, uh, words are the window into a person's heart, revealing either pride or humility. Jesus declared in the passage that Jimmy just read just a couple of minutes ago, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so just as a rain-swollen, muddy, and polluted river will overflow its banks to bring destruction to everything in its path, so a prideful heart overflows into ugly and ungodly words and behavior that destroys You see, pride never articulates God's mercy and grace. It never does. A humble heart uh, also affects our behavior and our words. Humility brings forth words that refresh, and I like to think of it as, as a cool mountain stream on a warm summer day. Humility is a means of demonstrating grace. What pours forth from a a humble heart are words that heal, words that articulate God's grace and mercy. But of course, we live in a day and time when pride has become fashionable. It's now a good thing in our culture to berate other people and to belittle them, to spread lies, to believe in wild conspiracies and advocate for those conspiracies as if they're the truth, to misrepresent the character and opinions of our opponents. And we do all of this to advance our own causes. The goal, you see, in this day and age is to win and to win at all costs. It doesn't matter who we hurt or destroy. We've got to win. 
Now, our teachers in this perversion of truth are, of course, the political leaders of our time uh, on all sides. Nobody is immune from this. And unfortunately, there are even some spiritual leaders who've joined in the fray. And so these leaders who we see on TV and and we hear on the radio and on podcasts, they spew forth half-truths and harsh words They attack people personally. They cause division. And all of this is, it just oozes forth from them like pus from an infected wound. It's ugly and it's disgusting in the eyes of God. And you know, many of us as believers are caught up in this pandemic of pride as we follow after our leader's example. We have put away, in effect, our masks of godly discernment and grace in the arrogant belief that since the stakes are so high, somehow we're excused from our loving duty to faithfully portray our Lord to the world. A good example of this is Jerry Falwell Jr., who resigned recently in the midst of scandal as president of Liberty University, this beacon of light in the academic world. And look at the smear that he has put across the name of Liberty University and the name of our Lord. You see, in 2019, among, among many things that are shocking, he tried to excuse himself from the responsibility to be a Christ-like example when some people criticized him about some very crude comments he made on Twitter about a well-known pastor, and they were crude. And here's what he tweeted in response, and this is in his own words. I have never been a minister. The faculty, students, and campus pastor are the ones who keep LU strong spiritually. While I am proud to be a conservative Christian, my job is to keep LU successful academically, financially, and in athletics. Well, that would be kind of like me saying, well, since I'm the associate pastor, the only thing I have to worry about is the administration of the church, and I don't really have to, to imitate Christ as an example to all of you. What he's revealing here, what Mr. Falwell is revealing here about his heart is that he's making a false distinction that many of us can easily believe, and I think probably all of us have at some time or another. I know that I have. We believe that somehow God's expectations of us vary according to our station in life or our circumstances. It is no surprise then that Mr. Falwell gave himself permission to use harsh words on a regular basis to whoever crossed him. We've also learned that that on a regular basis, he violated Liberty's own, uh, own code of conduct. This code of conduct that all of the students and all of the faculty and staff were required to follow. And there are many other things that Mr. Falwell did that we don't need to speak about here. But you know, likewise, some of us have made the same false distinction in our lives thinking that somehow the gospel doesn't apply to certain situations or it doesn't apply somehow to our involvement in public discourse and in politics. And so all of this is why our passage in Proverbs 15, verses 1 through 5, 
is so important for us to consider today as we stand here in the midst of all of this ugliness that's going on in, around us. Now as we consider our passage, we need to remember that all of the wisdom that is shared in the book of Proverbs is based on the fundamental premise that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the foundation for receiving and understanding wisdom and for living it out. The expectation here is that we will live in obedience to our God. A fool ignores wisdom because he loves himself more than God. But a wise person loves God more than himself, and he patterns his life accordingly. And so what we're going to learn today is that words matter. Words matter a great deal. <coughs> Excuse me. They, they matter because they reveal what's in our hearts. And because words have real power, as Jimmy said a few minutes ago, either to destroy or to heal. And so here's how the verses are laid out, these five verses. In verses 1, 2, and 4, we discover the power of words. And then in verse 3, we discover that God is paying attention. God is paying attention. He's watching us. And then in verse 5, we discover that there are two ways to react to wise words. And one way is godly, and the other is not. And so allow me to read our passage for us, and then we'll contemplate what God is saying to us. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of his word. Well, first let's take a look at the power of words in verses 1, 2, and 4. First, verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The idea here is simple enough. A softly spoken and gentle answer uh, makes wrath go away. This is true, isn't it? But, but words that cause emotional pain, all they do is stir up anger. In other words, if you answer wrath with more wrath, all you end up with is a whole lot of wrath. That's the way this works. On the other hand, a soft answer disarms anger. You know, more and more in our world today, we use words as weapons to belittle and to shame. More and more, the goal is not only to win an argument, but to do so at all costs, even at the cost of truth. And when we respond that way, all we're doing is stirring up more anger, more confusion. It's just human nature that people are going to respond to us that way if we uh, have harsh words. Years ago when I worked in D.C., and I'm not proud to confess this to you, but there was a lady in front of me in the parking garage. You know how you have to go single file, and there's a car in front of me. And, the, of course, we're all looking for a parking space. Well, somebody in front of her uh, was 
taking a very long time to get into their parking space because it was all very narrow and they were being very careful. They were doing the best they could. But this woman became all impatient and angry and honked her horn and yelled at the person. She kept creeping closer and closer to the other car as if to say, hurry up and get out of my way. I'm who's important here. I don't care about you. Now, from deep within me rose two diametrically opposed responses. The first response was a right one. Compassion for the person who was trying to park their car. They were doing their best. But the other response that rose up in me, I'm ashamed to say, was rage. Rage toward this impatient driver for being such a jerk. And so here's what I did. I did what every good Christian would do. I got out of my car and I started screaming at this woman. And I, and I was telling her how stupid she was being. Who was being the stupid one here? It was me. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think she went home that day all of a sudden realizing how she needed to be more humble and patient because of my demonstration of arrogance and impatience. I seriously doubt it. In fact, all I did was make her more angry. I could see it on her face. And I'm sure that I probably scared her half to death. And I am probably one of her bad memories. And that grieves me to the core. And in fact, I think as each of us looks back on our lives, uh, every one of us uh, can confess that when somebody spoke harsh words like I did, it didn't change our hearts, did it? All it did was make us mad and hurt us. And we began to justify our own anger in return. And I know that's been true for me. But when we read our Bibles, we also see something very confusing if we don't parse this out. We see Jesus overturning the tables in the temple and how at times he mocked the Pharisees. We also see Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. And then, of course, there's Isaiah who mocked the idols in Isaiah 44. Does that give us permission to do the same thing? Well, I've got to answer that question with another question. Are you and I, Jesus, the Son of God, are you and I anointed prophets who speak without error? You see, in other words, when Jesus knocked over the tables that day, he was doing so with all of the authority of God. Because, well, he is God. And, and likewise, when he uh, uh, was speaking bluntly to the Pharisees, people were desecrating his house, and showed he, so he showed righteous anger. The Pharisees were blaspheming him. And so he showed righteous anger. He was speaking as the Son of God, incarnate deity, not as mere man. And likewise, Elijah and Isaiah spoke as anointed prophets of God. They were speaking with explicit heavenly authority to do so. They were the mouthpieces of the Almighty God who never sins even when he is angry. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So vengeance likewise belongs to a God whose anger is perfectly sinless. 
And so that means that our role in this life is not to try to be the point of God's spear of vengeance. But instead, as James 1 verses 19 and 20 says, To know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, to put it bluntly, brothers and sisters, unholiness never begets holiness. It never does. And so the lesson of the prophets and of Christ is that, yes, sometimes we must stand for truth, for God's truth. In fact, we probably should be standing more frequently than we realize. But yes, sometimes we've got to stand up for God's truth, knowing that in return we're going to experience hatred and wrath. And there are times when we've got to stop throwing pearls to swine, when we realize that there are some people who are just never going to stop rejecting the truth of God. But in any case, the overwhelming example in God's word for us is that when we engage other people, especially those who disagree with us, especially those who are our enemies, that we should do so with love and that we should do so with the holiness of compassion and gentleness. Here are just three examples of hundreds in Scripture. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then there's Proverbs 16, verses 23 and 24. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Have you ever thought about that? By being thoughtful about what we say and by being uh, kind and gentle in what we say, we actually become more persuasive, especially when it comes to the gospel. And then verse 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. And then there's a, a passage in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17 that we're all very familiar with, and we've even landed here a few times in our series of the Proverbs. Peter writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, but when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, it'll give them an opportunity to realize their sin. And finally, in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You see, what Peter is getting at is that not only is it not okay to sin in our zeal to accomplish good, but the ends don't justify the means. 
Now, I once knew a a church-going person who helped to run a volunteer sports program for children. But this person was, was, and there's no other word for it, mean, downright mean. And this person was harsh and even cruel to both parents and kids. And so in a genuine zeal for order and administration, this person's harsh words and attitudes actually drove people away in anger. They left the organization. You see, the ends don't justify the means. Clearly, what Paul is declaring is that even in answering a person like this, who is is mean and, and angry, even in answering that kind of person, our loving duty is not to respond in kind, even as we stand firm in defense of what God declares is right and true to a soft answer to turn away wrath even as we declare those truths this doesn't mean that we are soft people it doesn't mean that we hold fast to the truth of God but sometimes we stand up in courage to proclaim the truth to others even when we know they won't like it and sometimes even we have the courage to remain silent to allow the other person's sin to be revealed Isn't that what Christ did as he was being whipped and scourged on his way to the cross? He never reviled in return, even as the guards made fun of him and mocked him, even as he was spat upon. He never, ever said a harmful word in return. Christ is our example. But why does Solomon say that a soft answer turns away wrath? Why in the world does he say that? Well, for the Jews, reading Solomon's words for the first time, uh, this is a simple truism. It's only human nature that when our anger is met with quiet confidence without ill will, it's really hard to stay mad, isn't it? I remember using this technique to fend off bullies in junior high school. You know the, the type of kid uh, they want to fight you uh, either with their words or their fists because they look at you and they well they know they can beat you up that's the kind of kid I was in junior high I was a target but you know by not meeting their challenges with my fists or with harsh words in return I was able to avoid a lot of bloody noses but you know Peter here is describing something even more significant an even deeper reason for soft words, as Solomon puts it. In 1 Peter 2, verse 12, Peter declares, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, that is, those who don't know Christ, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, what in the world is the day of visitation? Well, the day of visitation is the day when those critical and and mean-spirited Gentiles are actually transformed into lovers of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so God uses our good conduct both in speech and in deed as one of the means of bringing the lost sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. On that day of visitation, these sinners are saved by grace and they will glorify God because of the example of Christ-like lives of Christians who caused them to want the Savior too. Isn't that what happened to you and me? 
Before we believed, we saw people who knew and loved Christ. We saw a a difference in their life. And we wanted Jesus too. We wanted Jesus too. You see, we were once lost, but now we are found. And that should be our hope for everyone around us, no matter matter how much they rebel against God. So you see, even, even our soft answer has eternal value. Soft answers to hard words has eternal value. Our words really do have power. The power of God to use our words is expanded in verse 2 of our passage. Verse 2 says, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. In other words, wise tongues enable knowledge, but the words of fools pour out like filthy water that floods over the banks and destroys anything in the way. Words like these hide the truth. They obscure grace. They cause pain and confusion and strife and division and they ruin lives. But wise words, words that are spoken without the heat, yet even with conviction, words like these can cause those within earshot to know and to understand God. Isn't that glorious? We can be a part of the furthering of God's kingdom. You see, this is how the Jews understood verse 2. They knew that to know God is the epitome of wisdom. A wise tongue, even even as it proclaims with, with confidence, unapologetic confidence in God and His truth, is also a soft-spoken, gentle, kind, and patient tongue. A one that imitates our Lord Jesus Christ following after his example, even as the Lord of the universe was being scourged and put to death. Think of the arrogance of those people who voted to crucify him. Think of the wise tongues of your spiritual mentors. They have consistently been faithful to God's truth. They have have consistently drawn you toward Christ with their words and their behavior. A fool's words cannot do that. The more they say, the less truth they have to offer. And that's what we hear in the cacophony around us. You see, out in the marketplace of ideas of our American culture, there is precious little truth being spoken. And so we do need true believers who are truly faithful to Christ in both word and deed to commend knowledge to the world. But the key elements of our proclamation of the gospel to a lost and angry and broken world are not more words of anger and brokenness, brothers and sisters. The key elements are words of wisdom, born out of a reverential fear of God with hearts of humility and words of grace. Yes, we defend the gospel, but we do so with gentleness and respect. So brothers and sisters, wise words have the power to turn away wrath. 
to enable people to know and to understand God. And in verse 4, they have the power to bring healing. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. In other words, a gentle tongue is a source of healing. But like water out of a rusty pipe, perverse tongues reveal a person of a distorted, deceitful, ungodly way of life and character. Words from such a tongue can even break a person. I think the ultimate example of this The ultimate example of perverse speech is how Hitler wore down the German people to accept the persecution of the Jews. This ungodly, racist pride just overflowed his heart. And his perverted words over time nourished the seeds of hatred that were already there. But he nourished those seeds. He he made them grow into visible hatred. And they hated the Jews. Those seeds blossomed into a mushroom cloud of violence and depravity. And in the end, Hitler's unbridled evil not only killed millions of people, but it even broke the spirit of many Jews and even Christians who because of Hitler's oppression turned against God. They thought that God had abandoned them for good or even thought that God had ceased to exist. That's the power of perverted speech on a large scale. It destroys. But brothers and sisters, like frogs in a slowly warming pan on the stove, you and I as Christians run the risk of becoming too used to the perverted speech that we hear around us ourselves. And we risk the temptation of joining in ourselves. Perverted speech has the power to do damage not only to ourselves, but also in our personal relationships. I can remember uh, many of the harsh words that have been spoken to me throughout my life. And, and as I do, even though I, I know and embrace uh, the truth that God has soothed those wounds and I forgive those people, as I remember those words, they still hurt. And, even more so, as I remember the fact that my words have caused hurt and pain, that memory absolutely grieves me. Because that's not who I want to be. I want to be a follower of Christ. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. So we as believers can start going around and taking a verse out of our Bibles like a sword and start stabbing people with it because we want to defeat them. We want to put them down. We want to make sure that they know who's boss. We want to defend our rights. But we're not so interested in proclaiming the gospel of grace and mercy to them, are we, when we do that? But, verse 18 goes on in chapter 12 of Proverbs, the tongue of the wise brings healing. I want to be a wise Christian. I want to be a wise and gentle, uh, God-fearing Christian whose tongue brings healing. Because, after all, 
wise, God-fearing tongues have brought healing into my life. And I know what that's like. It's a wonderful and glorious thing. And I want everybody to be able to experience that. So keeping in mind Peter's eternal motivation for us to answer with gentleness and respect, who is it that we want to be? Do we want to be the sword thruster who destroys? Or do we want to be a healer? Which puts God's grace and mercy on display the most? Is God uh, most glorified when we use our words like weapons and put people down? Or when we point people to Christ in both word and deed? You see, there is indeed power to our words, whether what we speak reveals a heart of pride or a heart of humility. And so as we consider the words we speak, we've got to keep in mind the words of verse 3 where we discover that God is paying attention. Verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Well, at first blush, it seems a little even kind of weird for this verse to be kind of plopped in among these verses about uh, what we say and our attitude behind our words. But brothers and sisters, it's here intentionally because this verse is a warning to us. God is observing us. He's not keeping watch over us in the sense of taking care of us, although that's true too. But this verse means that he's keeping track of what we say and do. You see, just as there's a label printed on the plastic bags that warn us that this is not a toy, precisely because people have died playing with plastic bags, verse 3 is warning us. It's a warning label for us that our words matter to God. He's paying attention. And so remembering our scripture reading today that Jimmy read a little bit ago in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 34, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and he says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance the heart, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Glory be to God that he sent his Son to die for us on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Because I know from experience, and I, I just from the law of averages, that every single person in this room, every one of you listening online, every one of you in the parking lot, has used words as weapons, have used words not to the glory of God, but for your own glory. Glory be to God for his grace. Glory be to God. But you see, the evil of the Pharisees is that they were trying to twist God's words against the Messiah himself. They accused Jesus of being one of Satan's minions in a few verses earlier in verse 24. The Pharisees say, well, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man, Jesus, casts out demons. 
Brothers and sisters, do we do any better at all than the Pharisees if we give the impression by our harsh words and by our participation in the spreading of falsehood, by our lack of care for the oppressed, by our shaming of those who disagree with us, God is somehow not the God of mercy and grace after all. That he is the God of truth. The God who anointed his son as Jesus read about himself uh, from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4 to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to, to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Heaven forbid that we as followers of Christ should ever give people that impression. Even unbelievers, you see, understand that we as followers of Christ are supposed to be Christ-like. Even if they hate Christ, they know this. And even if they hate Christ, they can recognize when we're not being Christ-like. They've heard enough about Jesus and his love and all of those things. They understand this. And this is exactly why unbelievers mock and even celebrate when a Christian falls from grace, just as Mr. Falwell and so many others have. They know that, that the sin of fallen Christian leaders is outright hypocrisy. And that hypocrisy to them, brothers and sisters, is a confirmation to them that the gospel is fake news. I don't want to be a purveyor of fake news. So it's no wonder that God keeps tabs on us. Our words really do matter because they reveal the true condition of our hearts. Words matter because they matter to God. Words matter because they have real consequences, not the least of which is on our ability to testify to the goodness of Jesus Christ. We cannot proclaim Christ with perverse words. Unholiness does not beget holiness. We can't uh, proclaim Christ by rejecting even the smallest truth. And that's because we are, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We cannot proclaim the excellencies of Christ with perverse words. We cannot proclaim his excellencies with words that are contrary to our calling to holiness. God is warning us in verse 3. He is watching. He is paying attention. He's paying attention because our words have power for good and for evil. And our words are the windows to our souls and our hearts. Well, finally, we discover in verse 5 that there are two ways that we can react to wise words. And one is godly and the other is not. Verse 5 says, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Now here we remember that Solomon is addressing his son in the book of Proverbs. He wants his son to realize that true wisdom and knowledge come from God and God alone. He wants his son to learn all of the valuable practical and spiritual lessons of life that spring forth from his reverential fear and awe of God. 
And so Solomon reminds his son to embrace this training. And he also reminds him that a fool would despise it. To despise such training means to scorn or blaspheme wisdom itself. And so in Solomon's mind, that's the epitome of foolishness. After all, Solomon is conveying God's truth to his son. Why would you want to despise the truth of God? But Solomon also declares something very hopeful and helpful. He says that if his son heeds reproof, he's going to be a prudent young man. That is, he's going to be a man who has care and thought for the future by learning the practical and spiritual wisdom and understanding that is going to guide him throughout his life into a satisfying and faithful walk with God his Father. And so Solomon's point here is that there are two ways to react to wise words. We can react to godly wisdom by declaring it to be foolishness and therefore by rejecting God and becoming a fool. Or we can receive godly wisdom by submitting to God in fear and reverence and submission and in humility and becoming wise in our obedience and devotion to Him. And so my prayer, my hope and prayer for every single one of us, myself included, that as each of us considers the fact that our words matter so much because they have the power to heal or destroy and, that our, and as we realize and remember that our words are windows into our hearts and souls, as we remember that our, our words bear testimony either to evil or to good, my hope and prayer is that we will choose the second option, that through faith in Jesus Christ, we will receive godly wisdom and humility, especially regarding our words. That is so important, especially in this day and time. We have an opportunity to be the light of Christ. It takes courage to do this. But God will give you courage through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. He will always give you the right words to say and he will also give you your silences. So let us not despise our Heavenly Father's instruction. But rather, let's bow in humility before him and submit to him even our words that they might bring healing for the day of visitation. And I think there is no better explanation of all of this is what James, as in what James says in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, going through verse 18. This is a long passage, but let this be our last word for today. And as I read this passage, I invite us all to, to meditate on these words and to ask our God, our Father in heaven, if we need to repent. To ask God, our Father in heaven, to enable us to be people who speak words of healing and grace and mercy in a world that desperately needs to hear it. And so James writes... For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. He's describing Christ there. In verse 3, but if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, 
we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree... Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so, brothers and sisters, as we bow our heads, may God bridle our tongues, because only He can. May our fear of God produce humble hearts that bring forth the healing words of God's truth. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you from the depths of our being for your grace and mercy because we know that we need it. We know that we need it because of some of the words that we have spoken. We know that we need it because of the sins we have committed. And by your grace, you have given us forgiveness. You have given us forgiveness In the righteous and glorious and mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. May we never blaspheme him with our words. But always, always, always fill our words with grace and mercy and healing. For we pray in the name of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.